Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Lucy Gregg for a conversation about contrasting Constantinople and Rome in the 4th century. Dr. Gregg is Senior Lecturer in Roman History and is currently Head of the Classics Department at the University of Edinburgh, based in Scotland. She has written numerous publications over her career, including co-editing the book with a guest that has been on the show as well in the past, Dr. Gavin Kelly, titled Two Romes, Rome and Constantinople in Late Antiquity, which was published by Oxford University Press. And she's also editor of the book, Popular Culture in the Ancient World, which was published by Cambridge University Press. And she joins us today from Edinburgh in Scotland. Welcome to the call, Lucy. Thank you. Hello. Okay, so to start off with a question, Lucy, um, fourth century in the Roman Empire, can you can you share what the geopolitical environment would have been like uh, during that century in the empire? Yeah, for sure. So we'll start off at the beginning of the fourth century. So in the third century, really, there had been major geopolitical social crisis in the Roman Empire with the so-called third century crisis, where the frontiers fell, there was plague, there was inflation, there were all kinds of problems. Um, In the last part of the fourth century, uh, the Emperor Diocletian had really brought about uh, sort of geopolitical the ordering of this system with the establishment of the the Tetrarchy, the rule of four. So the challenge had been how could Rome, the Roman Empire, hold? uh, And the major solution he came up with was to come up with a rule of four rather than one. And rather than being based in Rome, the the Tetrarchs were based in four capitals uh, with an eye to the frontiers and the communications and a new focus. Uh, And so... Mm -hmm. At the start of the fourth century, rather than there being this kind of traditional Roman Empire with Rome at its centre, there was a very different kind of geopolitical outlook. Uh, and so the development of Constantinople, uh, well, well, we'll talk about how far that's something new rather than just a continuation, but that's the kind of picture we're looking at. Okay. And the Tetrarchy has come up uh, on the show in the past. An entire episode hasn't been. Uh, dedicated to the Tetrarchy, but Constant- Constantine has been covered in the founding of Constantinople in, in the past on this episode. So it has come up, but I want to make sure that we cover it sufficiently enough in this episode. Um, what do scholars know or can infer about why Diocletian decided to create this concept of the uh, Tetrarchy, the four, four emperors ruling Rome? And what I also want to get into this, uh, I guess it's another question, but you can tackle it if you'd like in the same same response. Um, the, the actual term tetrarchy, was that a term that was being used at the time, but, you know, in his generation, or is that something that, uh, you know, perhaps scholars later on started to uh, label it uh, as, as, a, as a term, the tetrarchy? I mean, many of these things, yes, are later, later inventions, uh, the tetrarchy. But the fact that they'd be junior and senior emperors, Augustuses and Caesars, that's mm-hmm. quite standard. There'd been perpetual problems with succession. Uh, and so Diocletian does seem to come up with a neat solution to have the kind of successors ready, ready to go forward. 
whether we need to think of a kind of act of individual genius or not, I, I, I'm not so sure. Um, it is a it is a neat solution while it lasts, but it doesn't. It ultimately it doesn't last. A Diocletian is a very rare figure in that he retires. You know, he retires. He's not pushed out. He doesn't die. He actually manages to retire and die peacefully. Uh, but uh, the Tetrarchy isn't ultimately the way that uh, Constantine. Uh, and other emperors will choose to go as a way of ruling the Roman Empire. Okay. Um, so for the episode, we'll call it, uh, for the sake of simplicity, we'll call it the the, the Tetrarchy to, to, yeah. to make it easy, right? And it could be colloquial. Oh, yeah, that's standard. Okay. So uh, what year was the Tetrarchy invented then? When is it believed that it was created? Uh, 384, we get, sorry, 284, we get the mm-hmm. accession of Diocletian. Uh, and at first he seems to rule in a sort of conventional manner, and then we get this setting up of, of the Tetrarchy. Uh, so it's sort of the 284 to 285 is this sort of uh, important moment in the history of uh, the later Roman Empire. Okay. And then we want to work our way, obviously, to the, the kind of the contrasting and similarity type uh, questions. Um, but to complete this uh segment um when does the tetrarchy dissolve and uh what are the circumstances surrounding uh that event well the tetrarchy starts dissolving when we get rival claimants so uh so constantine is himself part of this whole tetrarchic setup he is one of the caesars his father has been a tetrarch um but another rival emerges and so the kids of the original tetrarchs don't really want to play ball uh, and so we end up we end up back at the case of civil war uh, and where rome comes into the picture how constantine becomes the emperor and dominant in the west is by defeating his rival maxentius another another member of the tetrarchic uh, family as it were who is currently resident in rome um, which is quite an unusual thing at this point because Rome has not really been, as I said, the center of uh, the center of power. And it's in coming, uh, Constantine uh, famously comes to Rome, um, defeats uh, Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, which he does by allegedly uh, seeing a cross in the sky and the words conquer by this. And so then we get this sort of uh, seminal moment in, in Roman history. Okay. So we're in the fourth century now and uh we kind of started at the end of the third we're into the fourth now so when you when when you look at the fourth century with the uh roman emperors that would have lived in that century um can you speak about what they would have considered the principal residents or residences of uh of rome to 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 be uh, if there was a principal, if if you believe they considered there to be a principal residence at all? No, that's a very good question, because the problem is it isn't. So Max Anchez was based in Rome. Uh, he was getting up with some new, some new buildings. Um, but other other emperors, Augustus and Caesars, had been based elsewhere. If they were in Italy, they tended to be uh, in Milan. Uh, they also, or in Aquileia. So sites that were more easily defensible and closer to frontiers. Uh, in the east... Um, well, there were the te- so the Tetrarchic capitals uh, that was in uh, yeah so they they were they were elsewhere so 
Rome is not is not the centre of things. There's a range of different places to go. And there's cities which are never official capitals, but Antioch, for example, are very popular as residences for emperors uh, throughout the fourth century. So there's a number of different places you can go, although poets and writers throughout the fourth century still talk about Rome as the home of empire. It in many cases, it really wouldn't have really wouldn't have felt that way. The, they're not building shiny new palaces in Rome at this point. They're building palaces elsewhere. And I think it's probably obvious at this point, but I want to ask the question. Rome and Constantinople, Constantinople are part of the Roman Empire uh, in this century. Yes, still absolutely. at this point. Okay. All right. So let's yeah, let's let's work our way to understanding some similarities and and con, uh, contrasting. Uh, features then between these two cities. Um, you mentioned that the influence, for the most part, was more in the east than the west in this in this century from a, from an emperor perspective. Correct me if I'm wrong in any way with with that. That was what I was interpreting. Um, did 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 to what degree were? Oh, I'm, I'm going to take that question back because I guess it depends if. Uh, yeah, well, Constantinople was was founded in this uh, in this in this century. So let's okay, let's get the question in. So, um, to how often were emperors visiting Rome in this century, and how often were emperors visiting Constantinople? Yeah, so the emperors are in a variety of places, as I've already said. Uh, Antioch, for example, is a very popular place for emperors to be in the east. Uh, they do come to Rome, and we have some great accounts of major visits to Rome, mm. such as when Constantius II visits Rome in 357. It's a very big deal uh, made of that because the historian Ammianus Marcellinus writes this wonderful account of how he visits Rome for the first time because he's never been there before, and he's completely stunned by, by what he sees. Um, so emperors are quite fleeting in their visits to both Rome and Constantinople. Um, there's some more... Emperors spend more time in the later 4th century in Rome, and also it's from the three ages onwards, really, that you get more time spent in Constantinople. So we can see the increase in status and stature of Constantinople in the fact that the emperors are more, are more present in the city. We can generally tell where the emperors are from um, their legislation, because the legislation is recorded and it tells you where there are, so there are... There's a, a famous book uh, mm. which gives you the sort of where, which tracks exactly where the emperors are throughout le- throughout uh, late antiquity by, by this, and so we can tell that that uh, they're not necessarily in either of these uh, two two realms. Interesting. Was was any legislature? Did any legislature exist in in Rome, to scholars' knowledge, in the fourth uh, century? So, in the fourth century, Rome's position is contradictory. Uh, for much of the fourth century, the emperors aren't there very often. Uh, Constantine comes, he comes back for anniversary, but he's not there very often. But the Roman Senate is still there. And so the sort of symbolic centre of traditional Rome is, is, still, is still there. Uh, in none of the other types of capital, whether these kind of official tetrarchic capitals founded by Diocletian or the other imperial residences, was there ever any attempt to found an, uh, a body with the equivalent status of the Senate only in Constantinople, which shows that from the start, Constantinople is different from these other imperial cities. It doesn't just have um, the emperor and some nice buildings, it, it has a Senate. And so the decision to found a Senate uh, in Constantinople, and then the attempt to uh, 
enticed to, 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 to fill this Senate with senators uh, is, a, is a mark of the special status that this is going to be a different type of city. What year was Constantinople founded? 324 is sort of the, the founding moment, the full inauguration. Uh, it take, takes a while to rebuild, comes in 330. So it's, it's just after, so Constantine, when he originally defeats Maxentius for a while, he has a co-ruler, Licinius. So remember, we're still in this kind of tetrarchic sort of pattern where we've got a number of different figures. Uh, and so he's in the West and Licinius is in the East, but he defeats Licinius uh, after a number of skirmishes in 324 and is sole, and for this time is sole emperor uh, of, of the entire Roman emperor, emperor, sorry, the entire Roman Empire. And it's at this point that he uh, founds this new city in his name. It's not an entirely new city. There is previously, there's the city of Byzantium that's already there, uh, but he refounds it uh, as a kind of, well, in a way, it's a kind of victory city. There's lots of cities named after emperors. Um, Hadrian founded lots of places called Hadrianopolis, for example. So he founds, uh, refounds the city of Byzantium as the city of Constantinople, Constantinopolis in 324. Okay. And for those listening, a couple weeks ago, it was two or three weeks ago, an episode, an entire episode was published on the founding of Constantinople uh, with Dr. Michael Decker. Um, uh, and I don't have the exact uh, exact date, but a couple weeks ago, if someone wants to go and listen to an entire episode on uh, on that period of time in that event. Um, okay, so... Uh, so Lucy, what would um, so so if you t- were to create now kind of the 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 lay of the land in both cities for for what scholars know about these two cities around the time when Byzantium is being renamed as Constantinople, Constantinople as a as a as a city now is being founded in that in that way. Um, how would you how would you des- describe what Constantinople was like? as a city around 324, I guess, you know, kind of the crux of the question here, right? Uh, in yeah. this in this episode, uh, how was, what was Constantinople like around 324? And we'll probably work, work our way of what's known, you know, as it, you know, throughout the century. But then also what at that period of time, we might, we got to start somewhere at three, you know, around 324, what would Rome have, have been like? Yeah. Well, of course, Rome is a much bigger. It's still the biggest. It's still the biggest city. Rome. Um, I mean, the population of Rome, a million. It's a very round number, but we tend to stick with it. And there's no particular reason to think that Rome is still not pretty close to this figure uh, at this point in the fourth century. Um, the Roman city of Byzantium, um, maybe population more like thirty thousand. Uh, so, like. Uh, one of my colleagues compares it to the city to Pompeii, which really, really makes you think um, about the scale. You know, you compare think what you think about Pompeii and Rome, but obviously, with its foundation as an imperial capital, there's straight away a major effort to bring to bring people in um, uh, to to the city. So it does grow pretty fast, but still maybe starting uh, with so it's from a low base of thirty thousand, estimated up to maybe maybe the population has grown uh, tenfold to three hundred thousand a hundred years later. But it's a uh, it's definitely a small a small town, and it's a boom town. So all these kinds of new building going on and a real attempt to to bring people in. Um, and the institution of the corn doll. Um, which 
previously was limited to Rome. Again, it's another sign of the special status of Constantinople that it's not just another capital city. Uh, it's obviously in part, it's designed as a kind of ideological marker. This is an important, this is a capital city, but also presumably it's a way to encourage, uh, encourage population. But at this point, Rome is city of empire, the home of the gods, a uh, city full of sort of history and art, and Constantinople is, is new. Um, and there's a definite attempt to sort of um, bring, bring in things from all over the empire to make, to make Constantinople look good. And it's quite interesting with a number of commentators at the time uh, are more or less offended by this. They're, they're hostile to it. Uh, one, one, one writer, Jerome, uh, basically says, well, they sort of uh, denuded else, you know, other, other cities. They sort of ripped up artworks uh, from elsewhere in the empire and brought them to Constantinople. So it was a real attempt to make this kind of shiny new town, have a, have a shining history of its own, but clearly it couldn't compete with, with old Rome. And if Corndall is uh, the Corndall is new to anyone listening, can you clarify what uh, what that was? So the Corndall is um, traditional privilege given to the people of Rome, uh, beginning uh, in the in the late Republican period, whereby citizens were given a, a ration of wheat, um, which was a sort of demarked their special status uh, as the as the Roman plebs, the Roman the Roman people. They, in the third century, they started getting a pork ration as well, which I always find intriguing, but I don't know of a pork ration at Constantinople. But it's a serious benefit for, for the people. Yeah, and this came up in that episode with uh, Dr. Decker. So scholars have have, have leaned on the, the Corndall to uh, help create some estimations of how many people may have lived in yeah. certain cities, right? Yeah, so you extrapolate from the number of male citizens on the roll, and then you have to think, well, male citizens have families, but lots of people who live in a city are not citizens. Uh, although many more people in the Roman Empire are citizens at this point than earlier on, because of the you know the decree of Caracalla has meant that every free uh, every free inhabitant should be should be a citizen. But obviously, there are slaves. Okay, and you may have mentioned it earlier. Um, but I want to I want to make sure this gets in as well. Uh, so around thirty thousand people you had mentioned is estimated uh, around three twenty four in Constantinople. Uh, at the, around that period of time, how many people do scholars believe were inhabiting Rome? Well, as I say, a million is the kind of I mean maybe a bit less is a figure again okay. extrapolated from poor rations, from water supply, from. Yeah, there are many arguments about ways to estimate a population of the city, but Rome would undergo quite a major population decline in the 5th century, but we're not there yet. Okay. When is it... So I'm, I'm, I, I presume there's, at this point in time, there's a, uh, a Roman... I presume at this point in time, there's a Christian church in Rome, and then there at, at some point may have already happened. This would be part of my question. At some point, there is a uh, prominent Christian church in Constantinople. That, that church in, uh, in Constantinople, that diocese, um, diocese when, when is that believed to have started in Constantinople? This is where 
it's very asymmetrical in, in many ways, the history of Rome and Constantinople, because we don't know anything about the early church in Constantinople. Mm. We think, so we know that there must have been some early martyrs, Acacius and Mosius, because we hear about, hear about their relics and dedications to them, but we have no historical sources for the early church in Constantinople. So we assume on that basis and by comparison with other urban centres that there would have been Christian community in Constantinople. Um, but although Rome um, uh, has a sort of lively sort of religious dialectic, because we've got obviously the temples, very strong uh, pagan culture. There's also, of course, a very strong Christian history um, with uh, the relics of St. Peter, the bishop of, you know, a prominent bishopric. It's a very different type of Christian history, and we know a lot more about it. So how important the Christian community at Constantinople is, we just, we just don't really know. We also don't really know how much effort was made to found Constantinople, as opposed to this previous Byzantium, uh, as a Christian city in 324. The evidence is, is sort of, well, it's, the evidence isn't clear, and historians have debated long and hard about whether Constantine founds Constantinople as an explicitly Christian city, uh, or whether there are some pagan shrines involved in some of the new buildings because ancient texts that we do have aren't always that easy to interpret. Do scholars with um, a fairly high degree of consensus believe that uh, a Christian church did exist in Constantinople, a, a bishopric in the 4th century in Constantinople? I mean, it does. It, there is a bishop of Constantinople, and in 381, the famous council that gets given this new status at the Council of Constantinople, a seconding status only to um, only to Rome. But the previous city, Byzantium, is is it's very obscure. The major cities of of the east are, you know, Antioch, Alexandria. It's not it's not Byzantium. It's very it's very obscure. And in that sense, that seems to be one of the advantages for founding Constantinople. Uh, maybe this was discussed in your previous uh, podcast. In a sense, it's a kind of blank slate, uh, a good place to found your new capital because there's not that much history to bank, you know, to brush up against. Hmm. When is uh, a legislature believed to have started in Constantinople? Well, there's a Senate from the from the start. So the Senate uh, is the, is there right right from the start? I said that's what makes that's what makes um, Constantinople distinctive. But laws can be issued, pro, 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 proclamated. I'm losing my words today from, from anywhere. And so, as I said, we've got emperors issuing laws to prefects all over all over the place. Okay. So, is anything known in this century about? artwork that was produced in Constantinople and then, of course, uh, uh, Rome as, as, as well. Is anything known about certain artists that, uh, that existed that are considered prominent in this century? Any specific statues, per, perhaps? It's, I'm using the term artwork more, more broadly. Could even say paintings, right? Is anything, um, anything known about that? 
Well, as I've already mentioned, um, and this is something that is complained about by, by Jerome, um, what they do to furnish um, Constantinople with art uh, in the first place is not to create new art, it's to take art from elsewhere uh, in the Roman Empire. So clearly old is, old is good in that regard, um, and so, so famous artworks from elsewhere are brought to the city. Constantinople does have uh, an advantage in that there's lots of nice marble uh, marble quarries relatively nearby, so they can use new marble uh, in, in the building. But what is going on is a lot of recycling, you might say, which is very standard across across late antiquity. Uh, so it's, if we want to make a contrast with Rome, uh, we could thinking about Constantine, the very famous monument, the Arch of Constantine, which the Senate put up to, to celebrate him. That is famous for also having um, taken bits and pieces from other monuments, uh, spoliation, and so it has monuments from, probably monuments from the uh, bits of sculpture from Trajanic monuments from the Emperor Trajan, from Hadrianic monuments from the Emperor Hadrian, um, put them all together on an arch together with new sculptures depicting Constantine, um, and it's always a great uh, exercise in, in the study of art history because you can look at the very different styles and have a look, and, and so there we can, uh, explicitly compare and contrast uh, the different the different art styles and see what is being produced. The problem with um, Constantinople, as I said, it's a very asymmetric history, is that we just don't have anything like the same quantity of, of material that we can confidently say this was in Constantinople. So many of what we know about the artworks in Constantinople does not come from having them, it comes from descriptions. So, for example, poetic descriptions of the monuments that were in some famous baths. They tell us what was there. Uh, they mention artists, but these are not new. These are not new artworks, and we don't have them anymore. When it comes to, because you mentioned marble, so when it comes to constructing buildings in Constantinople and constructing buildings in Rome, is there any macro differences in the uh, materials? that was used, the, the the processes, maybe the architectural design in this century? Um, well, I think we just have so much less surviving from 4th century Constantinople, it would be hard to answer. I'm sure my yeah. architect, more architecturally-minded colleagues would, would uh, hazard a better answer than I would. So I said that it's really a problem that um, many of the striking surviving buildings we have in Rome are from the fourth century. So we have the Baths of Diocletian, the massive basilica built by Maxentius and finished, or not just renamed by Constantine. Um, but, and these were preserved and uncovered, uh, but the equivalent buildings in Constantinople are, are just not there in the same way. Um, you know, you can, there were these wonderful sort of vertiginous moments when you go and you, um, you, you you know you realize you're on the spine of the old hippodrome, but it's in a very it's in a very different kind of context. Uh, ancient fourth century Constantinople is hard to see when you visit modern Istanbul. It was um, in the fourth century. Were bathhouses still being used in in Rome? And is there any evidence that? Um, uh, bathhouses were being used in Constantinople in, in that in that century. 
Yeah, and that's an example. So uh, there are major bath complexes that we can still see if you visit Rome today, but no ancient bathhouses have yet been identified by archaeologists um, in in Constantinople. There, as I said, there were these sort of poetic descriptions of these particularly lavish baths, the Bath of Zuxippus, which have these fancy artworks bought from elsewhere, but we don't have the baths themselves. So in many cases, we're just reconstructing what there was in a city from... Uh, literary accounts. Do scholars have any sense and going back, uh, I guess a couple, almost a couple thousand years. So it might be, you might have to infer to some degree. um, But do scholars get any sense of what the, the environment was from a safety perspective in in Rome in this century. So we're not yet at the next the, the the next century when Rome fell. Do scholars have any sense of how so the regular population day to day how safe that was to live in the city, um, and then also of course in Constantinople. Do do scholars have any any sense of of that? In fire is clearly a very major and frequent hazard in Rome. Um, And so we know this from legislation and inscriptions, mostly inscriptions referring to rebuilding after a fire. Uh, So fire is clearly very common. Also flooding, the banks banks of the Tiber uh, can get flooded. So, you know, Rome is an amazing, ancient Rome is an amazing city with very impressive infrastructure, but it's certainly its inhabitants would have been much more vulnerable to, say, fire and flood than um, than you would in you would in a modern city. Okay, and so so working our way to some closing questions, Lucy, um, and I want to clarify uh, what what year do scholars believe the tetrarchy was dissolved? Yeah, well, it's a bit it's a bit vague in the sense as to where it dissolves because it's not an official thing. Diocletian, the sort of grandfather of the Tetrarchy, does the unusual thing, as I mentioned, of retiring in in 305, and then the whole thing starts falling apart. Um, And so in 308, they have a conference at Carnuntum, so Vienna, and try and sort of shore the whole thing up uh, with a new imperial college. but then it really does all start going wrong um, in the in the years that follow. Okay, so Constantine, uh, to my knowledge, uh, reigned for quite a quite, quite a while. Um, how many how many uh, emperors would have reigned in this uh, century? Oh, we get well. So Constantine, yes, is a very successful emperor. Um, and he does, you know, <laughs> manage a good, a good long reign. And also he found his own dynasty, so he has his sons. Um, it's after he dies and his sons take over and start again trying to rule the empire through different spheres of influence. This is when things start come, coming apart a bit. And um, the constant, and so the Constantinian, Constantinian dynasty sort of burns itself out. So we get the wonderful figure of Julian, uh, who himself is a casualty of the kind of bloodbath of the Constantinian dynasty. Um, he he dies on the Persian on the Persian frontier, uh, and and that's you know and that that's sort of the end of that. You get the Valentinianic dynasty, you get the Theodosian dynasty. Uh, so we do get new new families with new influences coming in. Um, 
in the fourth century. It's not as bad as in the third century where you would have this very long list of emperors, but still it's a complicated picture uh, in the fourth in the fourth century. Constantine sets things up really well, but his sons sort of screw it up. Were the emperors, um, aside from Constantine in that century, do, do scholars believe that they were print, looking at Constantinople by this point as the capital of the empire? Uh, that is a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, so increasingly, uh, probably from the time of Constantius II, so Constantine's mate, son, successor, that does seem to be a sort of point where the, the emperors are taking uh, Constantinople perhaps more seriously, but it's only really in the 380s onwards that Constantinople becomes the major residence. So that does seem to be sort of the sort of major point. And then we've got some uh, serious infrastructure investment. Uh, the Emperor Valens builds uh, the new arc, the new, um, the new aqueduct, for example. Um, so it's, it's, although the city of Constantinople is founded sort of afresh with great new um, accoutrements by Constantine, certain key items of infrastructure uh, take, take their while to come, to come in. So Constantinople doesn't have such a great water supply, for example, as, as Rome does, and this doesn't happen overnight. Okay. Um, population fluctuations. Um, how does it uh, change as we as we go through the uh, century? So by the end of the century, you'd mention around 324 estimations, 30,000 in Constantinople, mm-hmm. around a million in, in Rome. What, what's known by the end of the century, how those figures would have looked? So sort of estimations that about 100 years later, there might be 300 uh, 300,000 in Constantinople, which is a huge, you know, so it's really a boom town. Uh, Constantinople, uh, sorry, in Rome, the sack of Rome clearly uh, is a major shock to the population. Rome isn't destroyed. Um, uh, it's captured that, you know, the Goths leave again, but there are a large number of refugees. People do leave, people do leave the city. We have lots of accounts of aristocratic refugees, but other people leave also. Uh, and it's pretty clear that the population starts depleting quite rapidly in the, in the fifth century. But it would still take quite a long time for Constantinople to, to catch up and overtake Rome in terms of population. Okay. Uh, so closing question, is there anything that is top of mind, Lucy, on this topic that you really uh, you really feel that um, you should mention that you feel we haven't covered yet anything kind of you know itching that you wanna that you want to say about uh, sharing the similarities or contrasts between these two cities in this century? Well, there's always more that could be said, but I guess uh, just one thing is the unique fact that Constantinople, was supposed to make Rome no longer unique. It was called New Rome. Uh, before that, even it was called Second Rome. Um, and so no other city had ever taken this mantle before. There'd been claims that so or this person or the other, Mark Antony, wanted to move Rome, the capital of the empire, to Alexandria. But there'd never been a claim that another city really was the other Rome. And that's why the fact that it got the corn doll, it got the it got its own Senate were significant. It was a new ideological uh, element 
in the political geography of the Roman Empire, and obviously it would go on to be so hugely uh, significant uh, in the much later and longer history of the Roman Empire. Okay. Thanks for coming on the show today, Lucy. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Greg wrote, Two Romes, Rome and Constantinople in Late Antiquity, which is certainly germane to the conversation that we just had. And the second one was Popular Culture in the Ancient World. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Lucy and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.